Thank you for downloading Development Drums number 22. I'm Owen Barder in Ethiopia. In this edition, I'll be talking to Roger Thorough and Scott Kilman, who are the authors of a new book about the causes of hunger in an age of plenty. Before we start, I'd like to remind you that you can subscribe to Development Drums from the website at developmentdrums.org, or you can get it free on iTunes. I'm joined today by Roger Thorrow and Scott Kilman to talk about their new book, Enough, Why the World's Poor Starve in an Age of Plenty. Roger and Scott are both journalists with the Wall Street Journal. Over the last two decades, Roger has been a foreign correspondent and Scott has covered agriculture for the paper. And they've both been recognised by the United Nations for their work together on humanitarian and development issues. Roger, Scott, welcome to Development Drums. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So let me start off by congratulating you on your book, uh, Enough, which deals with a big global issue and all the statistics and analysis that that entails, and at the same time manages to remain human and connect the reader with what these issues mean for real human beings. And you manage, I think, to talk about individuals who go hungry in a way that generates the reader's empathy, but it doesn't tip into into mawkish pity and so I just want to say that from my point of view this is a really good accessible interesting book um, can you tell me a bit about what inspired you to write this what were the experiences that that led you to to want to tell this story well thank you Owen and I'm, I'm glad that is the impression that you got because when we wrote the book that that is what we really wanted to acquire to make it accessible uh, to be to people to to bring them into kind of the eyes and the lives of of the hungry, but then at the same time also kind of show those both in Africa and abroad who are are uh, on the front lines of the hunger fight um, and really doing a lot. So, kind of our purpose in writing the book was both to outrage and inspire. Kind of outrage that we brought hunger at such increasing numbers with us into the twenty first century, but also inspire that we could. Uh, um, that, that, that it's one of the great problems of the world that can actually be solved. It can be one of the great singular achievements of our generation. I think one particular uh, point of, of inspiration for us or that, that moved us to write this, and both our writing at the Wall Street Journal and then further to write the book, uh, was the Ethiopian famine of, of 2003. And Scott and I did a, a number of stories uh, uh, on the famine, and particularly looking at the policies and things that were going on in the Western world by the United States uh, and Europe and the richer countries of the world and kind of how that impacted farmers in the developing world. And a lot of that all came to manifestation in the, the famine of Ethiopia of 2003. And one particular thing I think that, that particularly motivated us, uh, and it's a central part, of, at least the preface of the book, um, and then kind of informs the rest of it, is is uh, one of the workers that I was with at, at the World Food Program, Voli Karuche. Um, who was in the Addis office, uh, said to me on my first day that, that, you know, looking into the eyes of the starving becomes a disease of the soul. What you see is that nobody should have to die of hunger. Uh, Voli and I then went out into the, the, the hunger zones in, in, in the ne- over the next couple of days, and that is particularly what we saw. And, and, and we could also then see kind of the impact of... Uh, uh, development theory, uh, development policies, and and you know, kind of the ritual world policies that were coming to bear at that time. Let's let's come in a second to the 
uh, rich world policies and the, the the challenges of overcoming those and just focus for a second on how big this problem is you said that we have brought this problem into the in, into the 21st century with us how big a problem is it is it a problem that's growing in the world is it a problem that's we're we're getting towards the millennium development goal of halving global hunger what's your assessment of uh, how the world's hunger situation looks today this is scott um I think uh, what really motivated us to write the book was the realization was, was is that this problem is getting worse, and, and and how amazing that is at a time when the world has so many tools to to spur agricultural development around the world, uh, and and our you know this this generation's ability to fight hunger is better than any generations before it, but then you sit back and you realize that the problem is actually getting worse. So if you look at data that's collected by the by the FAO and by the U.S. Agriculture Department, you see that this trend where not only is the, 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 the total number of hungry continuing to grow and now is above a billion, which is the highest level since the, since the early, late 1960s, early 1970s, but that for the first time uh, in, in a few decades, we're actually seeing the percent of the world that is hungry continue, beginning to grow. So you know, in, the, in the 70s and the 80s, and in the 90s, there was there was gradual progress against hunger, where the, the percent of the world that is hungry actually declined. Um, and you would expect to see that because the world's population was was growing, uh, e- even if even though the number of hungry pretty much stagnated in the in the in the 80s and 90s. But in in the in the in the last decade, we actually saw both the number of hungry accelerate. And we saw the percent of the world's hungry, hungry continue to grow. So basically making it impossible for the world to, to meet the goals that were set out at the, the World Food Summit um, uh, to, to have the number of hungry. And, and I, what we, I guess, also saw, and, and it happened kind of in, as we were writing the book and coming to the, to the completion of it, the food crisis of, of 2008. Um, and with the with the the, the great spike in, in commodity prices, um, and the impact that one saw that that had on the number of hungry that that, that Scott was talking about, and say in two thousand five two thousand six, uh, maybe you know eight hundred and fifty million people was the estimate of the hungry through the through the uh, uh, food crisis, and in in two thousand seven two thousand eight that number then as Scott said skyrocketed past uh, a billion. One also saw kind of the the, the serious political and, and, and security consequence that one had rioting in, in, in several dozen countries uh, across the world, particularly in the, in the developing world, um, and that uh, uh, also a signal that yeah, this is something that uh, uh, is, is is a problem that one really needs to uh, to get on top of. I was particularly struck by the figure that seventeen people die of hunger every minute. Uh, of of whom about ten are children, um, and you have some moving accounts in the book, particularly about Ethiopia in two thousand and three, of of those individual lives and, and what it means, and and your own experiences uh, meeting those people and seeing them. Uh, I wondered if you could just tell listeners a bit more about how that what impact that had on you and and what you saw. Well, I think one of the, the, the great impacts, as I was kind of saying, what, what, what Voli Karuchi from the World Food Program had said, you know, again, looking into the eyes of the hungry, 
and you realize that in a that in a in a famine and great hunger crisis, the starving you know kind of speak with their eyes because they're too weak to 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 speak. And what we wanted to do was say, okay, let's really take readers into the lives and in, and and into those eyes so they can see for themselves that nobody should have to to to, to die of hunger. And when you go, you know, and and, and what we saw in two thousand three and going to. Uh, the 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 famine zones and the the, the, the particularly uh, the places where the hunger crisis was most uh, acute and some areas of Ethiopia that really hadn't had um, uh, that problem and kind of declared food security uh, from the progress that they that they had been making and to see that gee the reversal that had gone on there in the situation that they found themselves in at the time and in one of the the places that we went to Bericha up in the the, the highlands down down by uh, uh, Awasa. Uh, was in a, 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 a place of where there were a number of uh, emergency feeding tents uh, that had been set up. And when you went in there and saw the children and their parents uh, that were with them uh, and heard from the parents that, gee, you know, the two previous years in Ethiopia, they had had the best crops of their lives and bumper harvest, both for the peasant farmers, the subsistence farmers, and the commercial farmers, but that when they took their surpluses to the markets and indeed to the same areas where they were now carrying their starving children, they found it correct that the prices had, had, had utterly collapsed by up to 80% in some, in some countries. So what we saw and what we wrote about then and then expand on in the book is that in the, the famine of 2003, the markets failed before the weather did. The, the, the drought was basically the final tipping point, but it was, it was the, 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 the market collapse, the, 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 the collapse in the prices, uh, the inability of the market to absorb the surpluses that the country uh, had and the farmers were producing that undermined uh, farmer incentive, led them to plant less, to use less fertilizer, to use to use uh, 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 less of the better seeds um, that they could get. Uh, and so what one had was was kind of in a biblical sense, the feast literally giving way to famine, and out of their out of the farmers' success came their failure, and that we saw, you know. In addition to the individual scenes that one saw, and the children and and and, and the parents that that were there with them, uh, and and the, the horrible suffering that they were going through, also this bigger question of this didn't have to happen, uh, and that is was one of the motivating things that we also wanted to write about, and we figured that that we needed to bring to the readers. This is Scott. Uh, so the the story for me was um, really the the uh, stuck in my head was. Uh, in 2007, I was I had been in northern Ghana and uh, moved my way into Togo and Benin, and was traveling with um, some folks from um, Care, and came to a village where they they'd had a project. Uh, I think it was a, a well, and I was anyway I was in a part of the country that wouldn't show up on uh, the, the FAO charts or the or any any kind of chart that would show it as a as a as a, a hot spot for Hungary. Um, but even there, you found hunger, and that the, what, what struck me is I, when I was in this village, I was talking to a, a woman, and she was explaining to me how the hunger season worked. Where uh, she was a farmer, and she was caring for several children, and I think she was the second second wife of, of someone in the in the village, and she was explaining to me sort of the the math of how much food she had to be able to grow. To keep her kids alive through the year, and, and part of the math work that was involved was figuring out well, when the harvest ends, this is how much food I have, this is how much sorghum and, and millet and, and corn that I have, 
uh, and it's going to last me this long before the next harvest begins. And so she has to actually do this formula in her head where the, 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 the further away she gets from the last harvest and the closer she gets to the next harvest, her food is going to dwindle and it's going to, it's going to reach the lowest point before the next harvest, which means that before the next harvest begins is when she's going to be, uh, have the, la the least amount of energy, uh, the least amount of food to get her by. And so oftentimes she has to do things like cut rations in half for the older kids down to the younger kids to the point where they actually have to pick the leaves off trees and, and make it into a soup just to, to fight hunger. And this is not a place that we would think of. This is not a place where you know, U.S. food aid is going into. This is not a place where you see the, the emergency feeding tents. And yet this is a place where they live with hunger chronically. And that opened my eyes up, I think, more than probably any other thing that I saw on that trip, because number one, to, to see this, the, the constant shadow of hunger in a place that's not, that is not in the spotlight, and then number two, my awe of, a, of an African farmer who's able to do and make these kinds of calculations where things are at such high stake, because if she's wrong, somebody in her family will will we'll get sick and we'll, we'll likely die. And I was just awestruck. And I deal with farmers in the, in the United States all the time who have the best equipment uh, and have you know, GPS monitors and biotech, biotech crops and, and weather radars and do all kinds of uh, math. And nothing compares to what I, I saw with the skill level of, the, of this woman. I was going to say, what Scott's anecdote shows, this is Roger again, uh, that... Uh, of, of the hunger in the world, and there's over 1 billion people, you know, it's more than 90% are the chronically hungry. Uh, it, 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 it is less than 10% uh, that are in the hunger uh, emergencies and calamities that, that, that get the headlines, uh, that the huge aid uh, 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 donations flow into. Uh, the vast majority of it, and all the development workers uh, out there on the ground in the world certainly know this, um, is that so much of it is is the grinding, chronic, everyday poverty or everyday hunger of uh, of, of of people going to bed every night without enough uh, food in their stomach. Let's talk a bit about the causes, and we've been, your anecdotes have focused on Africa, and a lot of the book is about hunger in Africa. And there's a fascinating chapter that you referred to a few moments ago, Roger, about. Um, the bumper harvest in Ethiopia in 2000-2001, the falling prices that that led to, and then the lower investment in the subsequent years and the famine in, in 2003. And you discuss whether um, why it is that there hasn't been a green revolution in Africa, why you haven't seen the kinds of increases in agricultural productivity uh, that we've seen in Asia. And if I understand the chapter right, but perhaps you can you can explain this thought. It it isn't so much you're saying to do with the agricultural technology itself about seed varieties and irrigation in Africa, but to do with the lack of complementary inputs, the things that you need to take surplus food to market, the infrastructure, the roads, the uh, the market infrastructure, being able to trade. Uh, futures, for example, in in grain and so on. What's your what's your analysis of, of of the green revolution in Africa? How much of this is to do with the agricultural technology? How much is to do with 
the the failure the systemic failure of both governments and donors and aid agencies to get the rest of the market infrastructure in place yeah you you're 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 right with uh, uh your analysis that it's it what one's looking at now i think is the necessity to kind of uh, uh deal with the entire what the gates foundation calls the entire value chain uh certainly the agriculture technology is is important africa is is vastly behind uh, uh the other countries uh, the other regions of the world in terms of in terms of fertilizer uh usage for instance the soils are so are so depleted uh, uh through through generations of 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 use without kind of nutrients being being restored uh back into them seed research and seed development has also fallen so far behind uh other parts of the world uh, so even the use of, of conventional breeding and hybrid uh, seeds for corn for 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 wheat is 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 also a rare occasion in in a lot of part, places in Africa. But what one what one is seeing, and I guess what what say the famine of Ethiopia in in two thousand three really showed was in addition to uh, the kind of lack of this this agriculture uh, technology or being behind other places in, in, in the world that, that had, had 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 the green revolution uh, or other agriculture transformations is that all these other things uh, around it as 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 you described and we described in the book had also failed there was from the from the famine in Ethiopia in 1984 uh, and, and and that horrible calamity for instance there was this big push in Ethiopia and elsewhere in Africa to to produce, 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 and the emphasis was on producing more food, and and and, and that was good because that was the obvious problem. Well, there's not enough food that's that, that that's available. There's horrible shortages, but along with the production of food, also needed to come the establishment of the market, so that when the bumper harvest actually arrived, as they did in Ethiopia, there would be markets that could absorb uh, uh, the food, uh, that would keep in farmers' incentives high to continue to grow as much as they can. At the same time, there was lack of development of storage facilities. And so, uh, again, as a lot of the development workers will know, 30, 40, 50 percent of the African harvest are lost post, post harvest just, just by waste because there's no storage facility. The road, the farm to market roads are so wretched that even getting the, 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 the crops to the markets is impossible at times. The financing, uh, which is being improved by a lot of the microfinance organizations, uh, that are coming up and, and now focusing on African the crop insurance. Um, that is coming. So part of all this is, is after the Green Revolution, and Norman Borlaug, the father of the Green Revolution, had, had warned us all about this in, in when he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970 for the Green Revolution, that if we didn't get on top of famine, not, not just dealing with, uh, with the human wreckage of, 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 of famine, uh, but, but actually get on top of, of famine and hunger, uh, we will be guilty of a criminal negligence without extenuation. And he was warning about complacency setting in, uh, negligence coming, and that all basically came to to pass. And if you look at the, the the just the agriculture development date, kind of fell off the table and so dramatically declined from uh, the middle of 1984. Scott, I guess it is what that there was maybe eight billion dollars from rich world countries in, in agriculture development aid to the developing world. It's eight billion dollars per year in in the mid 1980s. By the middle of this past decade, so by 2003, 2004, that number had fallen to about $3 billion. So it's just, just a, an, an, an abrupt, dramatic drop in agriculture development aid. And there were a lot of policies, and Scott can talk about these in terms of, uh, you know, the, 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 the subsidy policies of, of American farmers, of, 
uh, you know, the whole situation of structural adjustment, adjustment that basically, you know, the Western development theory was uh, Africa, uh, uh, government sector uh, should get out of the agriculture uh, sector and let the private sector come in and do it. Well, the private sector in most of these countries wasn't uh, strong enough in order to, to, to do a lot of these activities. Before we come on to the question of of the Western policies and and the change in development policy, I, w- I would just like to nail down, if I can, this uh, this this question of the diagnosis of of the nature of the problem, and more broadly, there's a um, you know Amartya Sen said in his famous book on uh, famine and poverty that. Hunger is or famine is not the condition of there not being enough to eat. It's the condition of not having enough to eat. So the distinction he's drawing is is um, whether the problem is lack of food production uh, or whether the problem is that there are people who are so poor that they're unable to access that food or um, some failure of the market to, to deliver that food to them. And it isn't clear to me from your book, even having read it quite carefully, quite where you are on this because the title of the book enough uh, starving in an age of plenty suggests that you think that um there that food production is sufficient but that but the system is not doing a good enough job of uh, ensuring that people who need food have access to it but a lot of what you talk about in terms of the policy failures are are to do with failure to invest in food production and I'm, I just would like to tease out a bit where you think, where you are in that spectrum of is, is, is the main problem that there isn't enough food or is the main problem that some people are so poor that although there is enough food, they can't access it? Or uh, Help me through where you are in this. I think, and this is Scott, I think uh, for, in, in much of the world and for many of the, the, the hungry that, that we're concerned with, uh, it's both problems that that the if if you look at uh, the biggest single group of people in the world who are hungry, who are chronically hungry, uh, the great irony is that they are farmers or people who have who have access to uh, farmland, and that's their primary occupation. So not only can they not grow enough to feed themselves, but they but they can't grow enough to have something to sell to their neighbors so that they do have income. Uh, so you know, I, I, to, to us, it's both problems that it's not enough food, and they also don't have enough income. So you know, how do you solve that? And we think, and I've just sort of said it, is that you know, one of the one of the, the most efficient ways that you can fight hunger and fight poverty in the world is to help the world's underperforming poor farmers grow not just enough to feed themselves, but so that they have something to, to sell so that they that they do have income. Um, I'm not so concerned about the the, 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 the the debate about whether what you know what's more important, a lack of food or a lack of income. Um, you know, I think it's an important observation to clearly it's an important observation to to recognize that if you do have income then you should be able to uh, to uh, afford food. But I think you can go too far down that road also. And, and, and so part of what we talk about in the book, and, and we saw this played out in the, the food crisis of, of 2007 and 2008, is that you know, the Western donors looked at uh, poor parts of the world and said, well, the, the way to help these countries, such as Haiti, improve their food security is not to have them grow their own food, 
but to have them be able to generate enough income so that they could buy food, in this case, in the case of Haiti, import food. That, that was fine until the price of food got so expensive in 2007 and 2008 that they literally couldn't afford to import it. So I, you know, I think now we're actually starting to see a shift where the World Bank and, and others are, are recognizing the importance of a country having food, food self-sufficiency. You agree, Roger? Yep, yep, exactly. Hill and I, I, this is Roger again. I was also going to uh, say to your point that what one finds in in almost all situations of of, of a hunger crisis, this horrible, uh, uh, dramatic paradox of both surplus and shortage in the same country uh, or in the same region, and I think this kind of that that uh, uh, paradox kind of addresses, I think, what what you were also asking is that. Yeah, oftentimes the production of food itself is not enough. Uh, there does need to be all these other uh, 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 aspects of agriculture uh, kind of also uh, uh, brought to, to fruition. And those things have been kind of also severely neglected over the past uh, couple of decades. As I said, just the storage capabilities, uh, uh, the markets, uh, 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 the roads, the communication systems, uh, so farmers uh, are able to discover what prices are out there uh, for their foods. You know, and, and, and this we write about in the book, and, and, and Scott and all his, his, his time of covering agriculture in the United States um, uh, knows, and we've written about it in, in, in the journal, is that, you know, kind of all, all developed countries that have gone through an agriculture transformation, there has been support from, from government agencies to do that, whether it be you know, extension agents and extension services that are going out and, and giving new information and new research and technology and explaining that to the farmers or, you know, subsidies from the government to the farmers. In Africa, that, that, that has, that has, and, and, and all that was a big part of the Green Revolution in Asia. That's been one of the great things that has been missing in Africa. So what you find is that uh, African farmers, kind of alone among the farmers in the world, bear 100% of the risk of a very risky business. So when a crop fails in the United States, for instance, somebody's writing a check to the farmers in most cases, and it's, it's usually the government or an insurance company. In Africa, when a crop fails, people die because there is no, there, there isn't this, this, this support uh, uh, system uh, that is there to support who are kind of traditionally and historically the, the, the economically uh, the weakest uh, folks in, the, um, in a society. Uh, and so, yeah, Production is important, but that alone is not going to resolve the world's uh, uh, the world's hunger problems if kind of this whole value chain uh, is is also not addressed. So I thought it was pretty interesting to be reading a book by a couple of Wall Street uh, uh, journal journalists, and I don't want to caricature you, but uh, it's it was unusual to read what seemed a pretty heartfelt plea for more government involvement uh, in the market. Um, uh, that's not something you often read in the Wall Street Journal. And of course, the reason why in the 1980s, um, the donors encouraged African governments to get out of agriculture, to pull back the extension workers, to pull back the uh, the government intervention is that where it had been tried in the post-colonial period, it didn't work. Um, you know, there are countless examples across Africa of uh, inefficiency and wastage uh, uh, attempts to collectivize and the the 
the thought was that if you if the government got out, then the private sector would come in and you'd have private finance and firms bringing fertilizer and seeds and investment and so on. And of course, that didn't happen either. But what is it that um, you think that that has changed that would mean that if the governments did get more involved in agriculture now, that they wouldn't repeat the mistakes of the 60s and 70s that that were also not a success? Well, we'll both talk, or this is Scott, we'll both talk about this. I, th- I think particularly with Africa, the biggest difference is it's not the 60s and 70s anymore where you have, have countries that have just come out of independence and oftentimes were, were uh, you know, poorly prepared to govern. To govern. Um, and now we have decades past where we have, we have more governments in Africa that, are, that, that do govern, govern much better and can do a, a better job with that, number one. And then secondly, you have governments in Africa who have recognized the importance of, of, of agriculture. In the 60s and 70s, uh, many African governments made the mistake of not thinking that agriculture was the, was the way to begin building their economies and building their nations, but to, to focus on other things, uh, in, in part uh, uh, industry. Roger, what do you think? Yeah, no, exactly. And you had, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we hear that from all sorts of people now. Uh, uh, at, at the World Bank, at the foundations, uh, in the governments, both in Africa and, and in the, the richer countries, and to swing in development thinking that, you know, in, in, in kind of the post-Green uh, Revolution period, we're looking at, well, reducing poverty. Hey, the poor farmers of the world, uh, in the developing world, uh, they're the problem. They're not the solution, they're the problem. Now that's turned around and, no, the poor farmers and, and creating conditions for them to be as successful and productive as possible is the solution. Uh, Bill Gates talks about that often in the efforts that the Gates Foundation is doing. It's the heart of, of, of what the Obama administration is trying to do with its global hunger and food security initiative, which they kind of popularly call feeding the, feeding the future. And so what one sees on that front, and, and as Scott said, what's kind of different now is you have, you know, after the, the I think it was in 2004, the, the Maputo Declaration, of the African governments that they will aim to spend 10% of their budgets on agriculture, which is a radical departure, a radical increase from basically ignoring the agriculture sector that they had, that they had done, say, in the 80s and 90s. Um, and then kind of also from the, from, from the Western uh, countries, such as, say, the, with, with, with the Obama administration's plans, which is a decidedly kind of country-led plan that goes to the African uh, governments, uh, and it says... What kind of agriculture investment plan do you have? Where do you need help? Where do you need support? And, and what can we do? What finances and support do you have? What is the private sector doing? How can we support the private sector? And a lot of this is driven to kind of, as you said, as, as, as the African governments withdrew, and, they, uh, and you're absolutely right, there were horrible inefficiencies, uh, in how they, and how the African governments were doing things. And there's always, there's usually inefficiencies whenever the government is, 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 is doing, uh, 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 Things like that, and so yeah, let the private sector come in. And you're right that the private sector was too weak in most countries uh, uh, to kind of fill that gap. So a lot of these efforts now are are looking at what can we do to create the conditions for the farmers to be as productive as possible, but also what can we do to get the private sector involved as much as possible. So say the fertilizer or the subsidies that were started by the Malawi government on fertilizer and seeds. One of the efforts there was 
how do we make sure that how, how do we get the private sector also involved so it's just not a government kind of handout or a government subsidy but that the money and the subsidies and things and and and, and the vouchers kind of are are, are flowing through um, private sector and, and entrepreneur and, and the, the the hands of entrepreneurs so kind of spurring entrepreneurship um, and the private sector at the same time and, you know kind of one of the things that and as Scott said you're seeing more more governments that are basically standing up and taking responsibility for this and certainly the Malawi government when they when they began the subsidy program in 2005 or so basically saying we need to be responsible for feeding our people and our children and to have children from Malawi on the international television screens begging for food is a huge uh, a horrible thing for 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 a government of a country to have to see and to witness and that we don't want to see that anymore and he's now the head of the African Union and and, and when he was just uh, named that a couple of a couple of weeks ago or a month or two ago or so one of the first things that he mentioned was putting agriculture as a top priority of of, of, of the African Union and of African governments and so um, the more that the African governments are behind this themselves and that they can involve the private sector in those countries the the you know, hopefully that will will create the conditions for this to all take off. As you say in the book, the uh, that particular uh, subsidy program for fertilizer and seed in Malawi was opposed by the Western donors, including the World Bank and the Department for International Development in the UK. Yes, because it went, it went against the the kind of the development orthodoxy of the previous couple of decades of you know having the governments get out of those sectors uh, and. You know, this, 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 the theory called structural adjustment. We even have in, in the book people who were big proponents of structural adjustment saying, say, looking back at it 20 years and saying, yeah, what we failed to recognize was that what we had hoped, the, 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 the private sector involvement that we had hoped for wasn't there and didn't, and didn't happen and didn't, and didn't evolve. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the, the initial, op, uh, opposition, to what Malawi was doing from the World Bank and from from DFID, you know, kind of along those historic lines that uh, uh, no, this is kind of breaking with this this uh, uh, development theory and orthodoxy uh, that we had. But after the first year or the second year, the World Bank and DFID were then saying, okay, we can we we can see how that we 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 see how that is beneficial, how that can actually make economic sense because some of the surplus from Malawi they sold. To Zimbabwe, and so it became that they were that they were that the money was coming back into and turn the next year subsidize uh, 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 su uh, financially support the the subsidy. So then we see that the World Bank and DFID and other uh, development organizations are then saying, okay, how can we how can we work with you on these subsidies or on this government uh, support, and hopefully that it becomes tailored to not only help the farmers but also the entrepreneurs and the private sector um, in the country. I, this is Scott. I, 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 I take it from your earlier question, and, and we, we get this sometimes. There's, sort of the, there's this intrigue at how Wall Street Journal reporters could could see a role for uh, for for big government or or, or, or uh, spending on on agricultural development, uh, government spending or donor spending on agricultural development. Uh, and um, I look at it differently. And, and so the question that that I come to is. Well, I'll say it this way, not the question, but what I've come to is sort of an understanding that good development is good business. I mean, we didn't write the book to try to uh, promote good, you know, good export uh, opportunities for uh, around the world. Uh, we wrote the book because we saw a problem that we think, an enormous problem that we think can be fixed by this generation. 
but uh, I don't see a conflict in, in approaching hunger and saying that uh, good development programs uh, are a good thing. I do, it doesn't conflict with my experience as being a, a business reporter because I know that there have been several cases in, in history where countries that have been able to develop a good agricultural system have been able to evolve into a, a, a strong economy and when they have strong economies and their middle classes grow they become consumers uh, from throughout the world and that is a good thing for uh, for for Western countries uh, markets develop the, really the first of the economic freedoms that took place in China took place around agriculture and I would argue that you you wouldn't have seen the economy in, in China do what it's done unless it had started with agriculture in the 70s and 80s. Indeed, there are very few examples around the world where any any uh, a healthy economy was able to start uh, without starting first in, in agriculture. And and if you have a health if you have healthy strong economies, um, that develops opportunities for for business around the world. Again, that's not why you, why we wrote the book, but I don't see. That argument is a as a conflict with any kind of reporting or anything I've learned about uh, covering business or industries or or, or economics. Oh. and it's a good, a good a good kind of reasoning uh, for for the U.S. and Europe of of why uh, there should be support for the for the African farmers. That if you look at those exact historical examples, because what is it, Scott? I mean, China buys what 20 percent of American soybeans or I something. Think something like 18, 18 to eighteen percent, maybe twenty percent of all the soybeans grown in the United States are now uh, shipped to China. You know, China is the single biggest customer of uh, U.S. soybean farmers, is becoming a bigger and bigger buyer of uh, of all kind of meat, and becoming much more important to U.S. farmers. So, you know, on one hand, you know, a U.S. farmer a few decades ago could have looked at China and, and seen that its that its that its agriculture system was beginning to grow and saw a threat. But that would have been the wet, long, wrong way to look at it. Instead, that set in motion the economic changes that would allow China to become uh, become a, 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 a one of its biggest uh, the farmers' biggest customers. You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barder. My guests are Roger Thorrow and Scott Kilman, the authors of Enough: Why the World's Poorest Starve in an Age of Plenty. If you enjoy Development Drums, you might also enjoy the weekly podcasts from the Centre for Global Development, called the Global Prosperity Wonkcast. You can subscribe to Development Drums and the CGD podcast for free on iTunes, and you can set it to download new editions automatically to your iPod. Alternatively, you can get Development Drums from our website, developmentdrums.org. You'll find all our past episodes, including transcripts. I'd like to thank Anna Scott, my colleague at Development Initiatives, who, in addition to her many other duties, has set aside some time to help me make these podcasts happen. If you want to find out about our plans for future episodes or suggest possible topics or guests, please visit our Facebook page. I'd like to move on, if I can, to a theme that runs right through the book and you you spoke earlier about wanting to arouse people's anger and it it um it seems to me that you're pretty angry about the food aid industry uh throughout the book you describe the way in which the provision of food aid by donor nations 
uh, intended as a humanitarian gesture um, it, it does harm. Do you, would you like to uh, tell listeners a bit about what what it is that makes you angry about the industry? Yeah, sure. I, I think it's mainly that, uh, say, the in, in, in the United States, uh, there's been a reluctance and a refusal on the part of many that are involved in food aid, in food aid uh, to modernize the system as it goes along. And, and as we point out, it, it's kind of a case of, of good intentions that have eventually, you know, over time gone bad or, 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 or had more negative effects uh, than, than, than were intended. Uh, the U.S. food aid system that basically mandates that all American food aid is American-grown food, and it's shipped on uh, American flag, uh, for the most part, on American flag ships. Uh, uh, and one that adds, what we're seeing is that it adds 50% to the to the cost of, of food aid, or 50% of the cost of food aid is is this kind of transportation, and not, and, and and it's not it's not the purchase of the food. Uh, from the American farmers by the government, by the U.S. government, but it's it's it, it's the whole shipping and 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 the other apparatus uh, that goes along with it, and that over the years, uh, it, it it the, the what has grown up around it is what's called this kind of iron triangle of of interest from uh, the farmers and the agro industry uh, and uh, the shipping industry and also the NGOs and the the the, the organizations that distribute food aid which which becomes a fairly you know important part of the of, of the work and the, the revenue and the finances uh, that they have but what that does is and more and more people are, are, are realizing this uh, is that it can undercut local markets as we saw again in Ethiopia in 2003 and it is just one set of kind of stunning statistics or, or, or numbers uh, that we kind of found it that at, at, at that time is that in 2003 the US shipped 500 million dollars worth of food aid to feed starving Ethiopians that same year in 2003 the US spent less than five million dollars on agriculture development aid to help Ethiopian farmers be as productive as possible so they wouldn't be in the position of needing American food aid to begin with and as I was there and you talked to the to the farmers who were coming off these two bumper harvest had seen their own market collapse uh, that there was basically you know the, the, the market for Ethiopian grown uh, uh, grain and cereals declining in some regions 80 percent uh, some of that food being held back in uh, some of the few warehouses that they'll say the larger commercial farmers and traders had in Ethiopia and right past all that was coming this American food aid and the Ethiopian farmers and traders figuring well hey why isn't there flexibility for the U.S. government to send cash and buy the food that we have here that was grown, that is, that is stored, that we have no, that, that, the, that the internal market has collapsed for uh, and access to the market? Why can't that be purchased with cash from America as opposed to their own uh, food aid coming to the country? So you had, you know, Ethiopian farmers looking at that situation, the $500 million in food aid versus the, the, the less than $5 million in agriculture development aid for Ethiopia that year. And they're concluding, gee, I think American farmers need starving Ethiopians. And others saying, well, wait a minute, American farmers have a market for their crops in Ethiopia via food aid, and it's a market that we don't even have. And so it's kind of looking at that, and, and the, the, the huge disincentive it is for the farmers when something like that happens. It doesn't happen all the time, but it, it is in places where there would be surpluses in countries or in regions, 
where food aid is rushing into, and the food aid does, you know, save 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 thousands and thousands of people every year, and 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 it's much to be uh, supported and praised for that. But there are these situations where when there could be this local purchase where with cash, and the Europeans are all cash, and I think the Canadians too, uh, that if the American system had a flexibility, in addition to sending food, which is needed, there's also this flexibility to have cash available to buy crops that are available either in the country uh, that is suffering from the hunger crisis or from from the greater region. And that would that would then also provide this incentive to, to the local farmers, again, to produce as much as possible if there's this other agent coming to the market. And Scott? Yeah, this is Scott. I, th- well, I think what's exasperating is that uh, we, you know, you can look at the, the, the U.S. food aid budget and say it runs between, you know, one and two billion dollars annually. Uh, and, and if you ask the question, uh, well, if you say, if, if our goal is to save the most, the, the most number of people from hunger with this money, how should we, how should we do it? It wouldn't be the way that we do it now. And I mean, if you ask the taxpayer, the U.S. taxpayer, uh, who, who, who support the idea of food aid? Polling data shows that, you know, gee, you know, here's here's 1.5 billion dollars. This is what we spend on on the U.S. food aid programs. We can save this number of people or a smaller number of people, and they would, I would bet, they'd go for the larger number of people. The reason that doesn't happen, though, is that we're we're told by the by the U.S. groups that. The, the industry groups that benefit from the food aid program is that you know, they wouldn't be able to get enough political support within Congress uh, to change the food aid program. And what we're, and the change we're talking about again, as Roger said, is that you know instead of you know, instead of the requirement that the that the that the U.S. food aid money be spent solely on buying U.S. grown food, that uh, that the government be, that, that that the U.S. or whatever agency appoint be allowed to take some of that money and spend it overseas closer to the famine areas so you can get it to, to famine areas uh, 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 quicker, not only quicker, but you could spend it in the places that where that, that money could, you know, as a, a Great Depression term, uh, prime the pump, where you could uh, create markets for, for poor farmers that do have enough to, uh, more than enough for themselves and and have a, somebody buy that at a at a good price and then move it to the fam, to the famine areas, but instead what we're told is that in the United States, you know, you, you couldn't get that kind of program uh, through Congress. Instead, you know, where you can get enough political support for the food aid program, we're told is if you know farmers benefit, so the farmers support it, and shippers benefit, so the shippers uh, uh, benefit, and uh, and even that the that the NGOs. A benefit from the way that it from the way that it works now. Could you just clear something up for me? I wasn't sure from the book. At, at times, you seem to be saying that food aid uh, was just less efficient than it could be. That because of the shipping from America and the higher price you have to pay and so on, that that means that you're saving fewer people, as you've just said, Scott, um, uh, than you could do for a, for a given amount of money. At other times in the book, you seem to be saying actually that it's part of the problem. That food aid is actually undermining markets, undermining farmers' incomes, contributing to the problem of hunger around the world. Uh, which, which is your view? Well, it depends on the situation. I yeah, mean, it's both basically. I mean, there's there's the chronic problem of it's an, it's not the most efficient way that we could be spending money. Efficient meaning that we could be saving more li- lives for the same amount of money. That's inherently a good thing. 
Then secondly, you can look at individual, it doesn't always happen, but you can look at individual markets where, be, uh, you know, be, because we it has to be U.S. food, that's, that's, a, that's a logistical problem. It, can, it takes several months for when, you know, the, the U.S. government discovers that there's a, a problem, uh, say, in Ethiopia. And that message goes through the nervous system, uh, uh, through, through the government's nervous system, so that the, the food gets, the, the orders, are, you know, bids are put out for the food, the food is bought, the, you know, the corn or the wheat or the soybeans is bought. It's put into a burlap bags, you know, it's put on the ships, it moves across the, the expanse of the, the, the Atlantic and, and gets over. That, that can be several months, you know, uh, and by that time, the situation may have may have changed in the in the place that you you've been trying to get the food aid to. So, you know, that that delay in itself often means that food gets to a place too late, um, and 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 actually at a time when it actually then disrupts the markets where you know farmers are trying to recover from a shortage. The market, the local markets, the prices have gone up. They're trying to recover from a from a shortage. The market's trying to work, and boom, then you suddenly have this. Uh, this external factor suddenly land on their head. So that's that's part of what why we studied uh, Ethiopia uh, uh, because that that was a specific example of where that happened. It doesn't always happen, but that's that when it does happen, it's horrific. Yeah. So when it, it, it's kind of both. It, it's as Scott says, kind of the just the inefficiency in the, the way America does its food aid, and that there's a better way by adding this cash component. We say maybe you know fifty percent perhaps of. Of, of American food aid should be in cash because you want kind of American food on the high seas. So when something like Haiti happens in the earthquake, wow, that food is there. It's quicker. It can go. It can go in when 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 it maybe is prepositioned uh, somewhere and, and and Haiti relatively close close by to the United States. Um, but so so there's that there's that kind of internal structure of American food aid, and then and we try to present that in the book and and, and make that argument. And then there's the other argument of food aid. Of the impact that it can have in the developing countries uh, and in the hungry countries themselves uh, of uh, undermining farmers' uh, incentive when they see all this food aid come into the come into the country. There were, you know, uh, again farmers in 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 Ethiopia in 2003 who, coming off these two two uh, very productive years, were bringing food to the market in 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 some towns. And they would see on another road or the crossroad, here comes the food aid coming to the country. And while they would just turn around and take their take their uh, crops back home because they, they knew, gee, with the food aid coming into the country, that's just more food into the system uh, uh, and into the markets. And, and what kind of price are we are we going to get? The World Food Program now, for instance, is is, is developing a program and, and working on it. It's kind of in its initial stages called Purchase for Progress. And and the point of that. Uh, is to kind of use the the, the World Food Program's uh, purchasing power, and the World Food Program is the largest purchaser of grains and cereals in Africa, to kind of use that purchasing power as incentives, particularly for the smaller farmers, to grow as much as they can, to have surpluses that the World Food Program uh, then could indeed buy, so creating this, this additional market. And that's something like if America had a cash component to its food aid, it could perhaps be a contributor to that to that program. And you see American philanthropists such as the Gates Foundation and 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 Howard Buffett, uh, uh, Warren Buffett's son, they're both involved in this, and they're they're thinking, well, let's give that plan 
uh, a try and some backing and see if that does indeed create this this uh, incentive for African farmers that in essence would see hey, if we grow it someone will buy it it's kind of like the futures contracts that farmers in America and Europe and everywhere else in the developing world uh, a developed world uh, uh, work on that's an incentive for the for the farmers uh, to grow and so kind of using the provision of, 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 of food aid the purchase of food aid as a uh, uh, as an incentive as opposed to disincentive which it is in many cases let's move on to agricultural subsidies which is another part of the um, uh, system that you criticize pretty heavily in the book uh, the practice in America and Europe of uh, subsidizing uh, particularly agricultural exports but agricultural production generally um, uh, to support farmers which uh, you argue is a is a undermines the incomes and livelihoods of uh, developing world farmers um, I was struck that the example you give is is primarily in the book is cotton, which of course is one of the more egregious uh, agricultural subsidies and has hugely affected cotton producers in West Africa. But I was uh, of, that isn't a farm that isn't a food example, obviously. Um, and I was uh, I was wondering if how how big a problem you think the farm subsidies issue is in terms of its impact on hunger uh, and food production, rather than just. Uh, it, it, I mean, I say just rather than in in things like cotton uh, and coffee and so on. This is Scott. Um, well, you know, you know, cotton's not a not a food crop, but but as, if you observed, you know, there's this debate over what's more important: having adequate food or a, adequate income. And the way that the farmers of, uh, of Mali have an adequate income to buy food is if they have a good uh, cotton crop and they can sell it uh, on the on the world market at a at a good price, so that that's why we see it as part of the of the, the hunger issue. Cotton is probably the, the the cleanest example, the clearest example of where you know what Western subsidies have an impact on 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 poor farmers uh, in Africa. Uh, the other major U.S. crops uh, uh, are you know, you have, the major U.S. crops are corn, soybeans, wheat, and and cotton that are that are subsidized. Uh, not that many soybeans are grown in uh, in Africa, but but there is there is corn, although not much. It's mostly it's domestically consumed and it isn't exported. So, I you know I think cotton is the 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 best example to use of, of to look at the impact of Western subsidies. But I think the same rules apply to the other to the other crops too to to wheat and and corn and soybeans. It's just a, it's just a question of the degree uh, that that. The, the international price of these commodities are uh, are affected. And then towards the end of the book, the last chapter is a, a kind of a manifesto of of things that we can do. Um, obviously, um, uh, changing the uh, food aid regime and changing the farm subsidies regime. But you also have a long list of other. Uh, of other measures that you think that that uh, the industrialized world could take. Part of it is about increasing aid. Uh, you suggest a global fund for small farmers. You talk about greater investment in infrastructure. Um, you talk about greater use of genetically modified crops. Um, I, I was struck that a lot of this um, was to do with what industrialized countries should do. There wasn't much 
analysis in the book or discussion in the in the uh, final chapter about um, Africans' own uh, leadership. Um, how you you have some recommendations that they should spend more on research and and uh, um, a couple of paragraphs on land reform. But to what extent do you think that the primary responsibility lies with those of us from industrialized countries to change our behavior and policies? And to what extent is this uh, primarily an, uh, an issue for the policies and actions of developing countries and their governments? I, I think it's a dual thing. Um, and it has to run on, on kind of parallel tracks. So obviously, the primary responsibility for um, making sure that that their own populations are, are, are well fed and there's adequate food production in the countries and kind of this food, this, this notion of food security would lie with the, with the African governments themselves. The same way that, the, and, 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 and that we, that we say, and we kind of point that out earlier in the book, kind of in, in, in as we're, 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 we're kind of, you know, uh, uh, whipping up this, this, this outrage of things of how we've gotten to this stage of the behavior of, 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 of some African governments, uh, you know, the impact that, that, that conflict has, uh, Using food as a as a weapon of, of, of political control, of other political decisions that uh, uh, would would harm the farmer, of of ignoring and and neglecting the farmers, uh, that the African countries and governments themselves are um, to blame for, as, as as well as you know the international uh, uh, institutions and the financing institutions and development institutions for also kind of ignoring and, and neglecting. Uh, the African farmer, but then you also need this 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 parallel thing as we were talking about, you know, kind of of of, of support that 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 farmers need, and African farmers left to bear one hundred percent of the risk. That a lot of the African countries themselves, um, you know, even if they devote ten percent of their budgets uh, to agriculture, will still need additional funding for that. And what we call for, you know, kind of, you know. Not in essence, kind of more aid, because there, there's also obviously, as you're, you're well aware of, it, all the listeners would be aware of this kind of also debate of, well, what's the use of of, of aid in Africa uh, and the developing world after so much money over the decades has been spent in aid? Well, what what does one have to show for it? I think one of the points that 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 we make is a lot of that aid has not flown into the agriculture sector. Uh, agriculture, in essence, has been has been starved of aid both by the African governments themselves and the international uh, community. So kind of a reorientation of, of that aid uh, to, to basically aid the people who in, in, in a lot of African countries make up 60, 70, 80% of the, of the population of those countries. And those are the small, the small farmers. And so uh, I guess our recommendations are, yeah, both on, on here's what uh, 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 the richer world uh, countries can do, but then also, obviously, you know, gee, here's things that have to also go on in Africa. And, and the, the big role that, uh, uh, you know, African entrepreneurs can play. And we didn't, in, in that chapter on the recommendations, I guess we didn't include things that we had also mentioned in previous chapters of the book. And, and, and one of the great examples of what African business people and entrepreneurs themselves are doing and the role that they can play such as Eleni Gabramadan, who started the Ethiopian Commodities Exchange, who was the, the, the moving force behind that in, in Ethiopia, and that all coming out of the famine of, of, of 2003 and realizing the crucial nature uh, of markets. So those are things that kind of by, by showing the example of them, uh, we are kind of giving that, or that then becomes also a recommendation of sorts that 
uh, hey, there's these things that these folks are doing, and uh, uh, you know, as they are successful, uh, uh, hopefully they become models to be to be replicated. And if there are, if if you could uh, speak to a policymaker in a lift uh, in an elevator. And uh, they said to you, right, what are the what are the three things that we as as Western policymakers ought to do differently? What would be your priorities? Would it be to do with the aid side or to do with the food aid side? Or we haven't talked about uh, ethanol subsidies, but where where do you think are the most important interventions for for um, Western governments? I'll start. This is Scott. I'll start. Number one, I'd say. Read our book, Roger. What's, number, what's yeah. number two? Read our book. That's a, the. Uh, uh, I mean, if, if what one sees, and as we start off that last chapter, we're kind of you know this parallel between uh, uh, you know what what the statements of, of Harry Truman and things at, uh, as as the uh, uh, Marshall Plan and things got going, and well, here's what Obama uh, and and the administration can do, uh, following up on what he talked about in his inaugural address. Of, of helping farms flourish in the developing world. Uh, and the things that they're doing with this global hunger and food security uh, initiative, uh, that and, and there's bills that are looking for funding for that, you know, would say to kind of American policymakers, uh, you know, look at what the administration is, is, is trying to do. Uh, see how, how that can be, how that can be supported, how uh, American Aid, in essence, can be shaped to create the conditions for uh, the poorest farmers in the world to be as productive as possible, to feed their families, uh, uh, to feed their regions, to feed their communities, uh, and you know, kind of to put that at the, the at the forefront, and also that it's 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 not only in the interest of of those farmers themselves in the African countries and 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 the upliftment or the alleviation of poverty and the development of Africa, but it's also decidedly in our own interests. Uh, here too. One, we can't live in a world where more than one hundred, where, where more than one billion people are going to bed hungry every night. Uh, and uh, and two, it is in our our own security interests um, that uh, 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 that that doesn't happen. So there are also moral and practical reasons uh, that basically hunger ought to be the number one uh, uh, priority uh, of of development aid and the development assistance efforts. And this is Scott. I, I think if I if I was if I had the opportunity to be stuck in an elevator with a with a policymaker, um, it's not un, unlike some examples where uh, you know Roger and I have have had conversations with with policymakers during the writing of this book and after the writing of, the, of this book. And when I get time, what what I do is I don't I don't give them a list of three things that would have the most impact, like you know changing ethanol subsidies or changing food aid. What I find myself doing is trying to have a conversation uh, about why uh, the, the, the hunger situation that we have in the world today is not a natural state. I think many people uh, look at hunger as something that has always been with us and will always be with us, and it's unfortunate, but that's just the way the world works. There isn't enough for everybody, and you know, we, and we just have to accept that, and we need to do... You know, we need to make a good effort, um, but it, you know, it's not going to be our number one priority. And the, the conversation I try to have, and I often end up having, is to help people understand that there are things that this generation can do that can we think can end, end hunger in this generation and at least take an enormous bite out of it. And I think you know, 
there are certain policy things that can be done. There are technological things that can be done. That if you put them all, you know, if you put them all together, you start to realize that it's not an overwhelming uh, problem. That it is something that we can make a big difference. Scott Kilman, Roger Ferro, authors of Enough: Why the World's Poorest Starve in an Age of Plenty. Thanks to both of you for coming on Development Drums. Our Thanks pleasure. For, Thanks Thank for you. your time.